Welcome to another episode of the Duck of Minerva podcast. We're starting what I hope to be a third series in the podcast where we bring on practitioners, not practitioners, but scholars who can talk to us about things that are going on in the world. And today we have two old friends of mine, uh, Nina Cullers and Mark Raymond, to talk about the solar winds hack, the Russia hack of the solar winds um, company, which I don't know about those of you who are listening. I don't know that much about this stuff. I can barely turn my computer on. But uh, Nina and Mark know a lot about this. Brief backgrounder for me, back last year, last year, I think it was this uh, back-end company, SolarWinds, that provided data, or not data backup, but uh, uh, software updates to the federal government was hacked. Apparently, they had a ridiculously easy-to-guess password, and it is believed Russian agents inserted uh, spyware, some kind of malware into the updates that were sent then to federal computers and were then lurking in federal networks for a number of months. And it's turned into a huge mess. I am somewhat surprised as a somewhat uneducated observer that this issue has fallen out of the news so quickly. I think that probably speaks more to the rapidity of the news cycle than it does the significance of the incident itself. So um, I thought after a kind of brief cooling off period where it's not so much a hot take as an educated take, we would have Nina and Mark on to discuss this. And we've at this point reached the limit of my knowledge. So let me turn it over to Nina and Mark. And I'll start with you, Nina. Have I, I, I presume I've given a barely adequate backgrounder on this. What what more do we need to know about this hack? So it's, it's a, um, one of the things that we have to be careful when we talk about something like, like the SolarWinds hack is the degree to which we think we actually know what actually happened. And so the good news is, Jared, if you haven't sort of gotten all the way read up on exactly what went on, don't worry. Um, most of the firms that are doing most of the writing on this issue also still don't quite know. So every day is a brand new set of information, some, some new data about you know, how many zero day exploits they use to set up the entire listening infrastructure. And I call it a listening infrastructure because the SolarWinds hack in this case was set up to siphon whole bunches of data from all sorts of targets. And I think the number they're throwing out there is something like 18,000 compromised organizations. So organizations is obviously much bigger than just one computer. Um, but to be perfectly honest, we don't actually know. Um, all we know is who has, who has looked into their own systems to find what they call indicators of compromise or IOCs um, to see, oh, hey, wait, maybe I have this problem too. And so of those entities that have looked into their own systems, right now we get this number, we get this list. And so we actually don't know the full um, breadth or depth. Um, and, or even in some cases, I think where it's still contested how long they've been lurking. Um, so now I think someone's latest guess is sometimes since last June. Um, and Mark can clarify, but, but anyway, so lurking for a long time, taking a lot of data, um, and, and, and so that's, 
that's the question, right? Is that if you've compromised this many organizations, um, I think one of the key questions in people's minds who think about international relations scholarship and theory is what is it, what's an appropriate and proportional response and who do we do, how do we do it? And I think the Biden administration is now, right, saddled with this very complicated question. Also, just quickly before I turn it over to Mark, one of the reasons I think we're not seeing a lot of it in the news anymore, one, is that it, the technicalities make people's eyes glaze over, and that's just true about cyber issues overall. But second, we had a transition of leadership. And so the prior administration, um, you know, whether you like the prior administration or not, it really, the timing at which it was discovered, there really wasn't there really wasn't enough on the table yet to decide. And so really it's, it got left to the Biden administration to sort of think about this in a substantial way and how we should respond. Mark, I'm gonna turn it over to you. What, what other gaps did, uh, did, did, did I leave behind there? And um, you know, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, in terms of the technical stuff, I don't really have too much to add. I, you know, you're better versed in, in that end of this than I am. And so for me, when I start thinking about this, I start thinking, okay, what does it actually mean for international politics at both a, a sort of scholarship level and a policy practitioner level? And I think that it's, you know, been really interesting as I was sort of getting ready for this, I sort of uh, asked my GA to help me out and pull all the takes that people have had in, in the usual places. And it was really fascinating reading through them this morning because an awful lot of really great people have weighed in and said some really smart things about this. I mean, I'm sure I missed a lot of it too. It, it's just, on the one hand, it was actually really heartening to see just how much good sort of social science-based stuff we actually have here. This isn't just a techie story anymore. It's come an awful long way. I sort of started working on cyber issues as a postdoc uh, you know, about nine years ago now, just before Edward Snowden went public, a few months before that. And so I, you know, I still think of myself as a neophyte to all this stuff because I don't have much technical background, but I've been working on the sort of social science, international relations issues for a long time now. And there's all these great people. I mean, Herb Wynn has a great piece. Bruce Schneier has a great piece. Erica Borghardt's written some great stuff. Jackie Schneider, um, you know, Mike Schmidt has a nice background around the international law angle of this. And, and there's so many great people out there writing about it. And so at one level, I'm really heartened because I think, okay, we're actually in a better place than we've ever been in terms of understanding the social implications of big cyber events like this. So that's great. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's still clear that we've got a lot of thinking to do and we've got a lot of sort of woodshedding to do in terms of helping people understand what this is and what this isn't. And so that's where I wanna start. And there's two pieces of this. I mean, ultimately really this is a supply chain sort of story in a lot of ways. It's not only that, of course, but it is crucially a supply chain story. And it gives us sort of two really important understandings about thinking about IT supply chain security. So when we talk about that, it's almost always hardware and it's almost always China, right? IT supply chain security is a Huawei problem and it's about network devices. Okay, sure. It, it may be about those things, absolutely. It is also about Russia. The APT here is believed to be a Russian actor. And crucially, they targeted virtual supply chain, right? So this company, SolarWinds, makes a software program called Orion, which is a management, a network management software program. It's used pretty broadly. And it does look like the primary motivation here was access to US government departments and networks. But already we know there are targets 
uh, that have identified themselves in at least seven other countries, including the United Kingdom, Canada, the UAE, Spain, and a handful of others. And as Nina suggested, highly likely, in fact, almost certain, there are many more countries affected. There are also key organizations that are affected by this that are not government departments or agencies themselves. So Microsoft has been very badly affected by this. Microsoft is a globally systemically important IT company, obviously. Getting to say that, but if you compromise Microsoft, you compromise an awful lot of other things, potentially at least. And so we don't really know. Microsoft doesn't know that, and they spend an enormous amount of time and effort on cybersecurity, and they're very good at it. Right? So the supply chain is only as secure as its weakest link, and that supply chain is enormously complicated. It's enormously transnational, and includes companies like SolarWinds, frankly, that almost nobody had ever heard of. I'd never heard of it prior to this. I'd never heard of the Orion software. But it turns out if you compromise that, you can compromise an awful lot of other things. And the sort of last piece of the supply chain story is what they did was compromise an update process. That's an enormously, enormously important thing to note because maintaining trusted software update processes is itself crucial to maintaining good cyber hygiene. If we can't do that, that's an enormous problem because we're all depending on them. Right? You depend on clicking that Windows update or the iOS update and getting real stuff from the people who you think you're getting it from. That is what didn't happen here because people were getting things from SolarWinds that weren't really from SolarWinds. And so thinking about supply chain in terms of adversaries other than China, thinking about supply chain in terms of the virtual supply chain, and in terms of the highly transnational, highly distributed, highly decentralized nature of that supply chain is enormously important. So for the sort of folks paying attention to IT supply chain security, this is a really important story because it vastly broadens our understanding. The second piece that I'll maybe sort of just throw out there from now and we can come back to it, this was not a breach of international law. Mike Schmidt has a really great explainer on why this actually is legal under international law because espionage is legal under international law. It violated American domestic law. It violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act by gaining unauthorized access to a computer system. It violated similar laws in any country where there's a victim that has that kind of law, which is now most countries. Um, but it didn't violate international law, which sharply limits the kinds of foreign policy response tools that will be legal on the part of the United States. And in fact, it takes almost all the good option set off the table. There's not really a good option set here. And so in terms of thinking about a legal international response, we're kind of in a tough spot. And that's a really important thing to note here. This was not an act of war, uh, despite, you know, we've seen some rhetoric, the, the Schmidt piece, quotes a couple of senators who, you know, Senator Durbin, Senator Rubio, others, people who you would hope know better by this point, uh, saying some really sort of hyperventilating things about what this is. And, and that's troubling because if people don't understand what this is and what is legal as a response, we can get into escalation dynamics. And hopefully we won't see too many of those. The scholarship suggests that cyber actually isn't usually terribly escalatory, but, you know, that's true until it isn't right? Unlikely doesn't mean impossible. So hopefully cooler heads prevail and people can do the important remediation work without really sort of blowing this into something that it shouldn't.
So <clears throat> there's a there's a couple pieces here. One is the technical side of cybersecurity, which is this virtual supply chains and the software update systems and the transnational nature of all of this. There's the international law element of it in which it was, it was actually surprising to me hearing you just now say that it's not um, any kind of violation of international law. And I would imagine that's surprising to quite a few people who don't know uh, very much about international law or anything about international law. One would presume that this is a, an aggressive act, right? Uh, and so I guess my next question for both of you is, what are the ramifications of this, either in terms of thinking about American national security and how that broadly links into cybersecurity, uh, or specifically the ramifications of this particular breach, right? Um, Nina, you said that w there are a lot of uh, actors out there who are still trying to come to terms with the scope and scale uh, of this, but do we have any sense as to the significance of this specific issue? And then do we expect any ramifications coming out of this for, I don't know about the virtual supply chain stuff, that's really um, not my area at all, and not that any of this is my area, but are there any ramifications of this? Do we expect states might start to revisit these, the international law that speaks to the permissiveness regarding espionage, if nothing else, because the scale of incidents can be so much greater than it could be when you've got one guy running around in the Pentagon or the CIA, and, and that one individual can do some really substantial damage. But it, but even then, the damage is limited, right, to that one person. And I use guy in a gender gender neutral uh, form. I don't want to preclude women from uh, undertaking espionage. That one person is there. The damage is limited to the number of documents they can get access to, or that they can copy onto a flash drive, or that they have, you know, wh whatever, right? So that ostensibly there are there are, that is a that is easier understood and more limited problem that states could kind of say, okay, well, you know all's fair in love and war, and you got your steel and we got our steel, but now you can have a foreign state sit across multiple computer networks across an entire government and just hoover up, you know, who knows how much information. And that seems to me a qualitative break from the past. And so I wonder if there's, there is any sense that states might say, huh, maybe we ought to revisit these issues. And I'll I'll throw that open to both of you. So um, I'll take a first step at it because I, so it's the elephant in the room. Uh, there's a kind of uncomfortable instability when you say we need, to, we need to revisit these norms about espionage and whether or not espionage constitutes violence. And, and it makes us uncomfortable because of course it destabilizes existing strong structures of state behavior, right? And so you know, there's this logic of what's appropriate of what's proportional. And, and so thinking about data stolen as potential future harm is a really confusing thing. 
Um, and I think I'm, I'm going to highlight Josephine Wolf's uh, book, you'll see this message when it is too late. And she does this at the domestic level. Um, I do believe the publisher on that is MIT. Um, but she does this work on sort of looking at these major breaches and says, look, how do you, you know, how are judges thinking through the fact that, no, I can't, I can't show you actual harm right now since all my data was stolen, but I know it's coming, right? It's going to come. And so, and so then if we, if we project this domestic question onto the international scale and you ask yourself the question, is quantity, does it carry a quality all its own? And does it, when, when does it tip the scales of just data theft toward, no, there will be harm. This has real consequences and therefore it becomes a space in which different kinds of reactions, right? Or different rethinking what those laws are. And I, you know, honestly, again, not as a, not being a legal scholar, I can't even begin to think of the mechanisms you would have to pull under the legal precedents you have to pull on to make that the case. Um, but that's, it's, it is the elephant in the room. And I think that there's a, it's, there's far too many responses, especially early responses about solar winds that are out there in the blogosphere that say, well, it's just an act of espionage. So don't worry about it. And the answer is, I don't know. I mean, how much espionage do you want before this is a disaster? Um, and in particular, it's not just because the data was stolen by whichever threat actor we think stole it. It's because that data can be replicated globally, right? So it's not even just future harm from one adversary. It can go on for a long time, right? Everybody can reuse that data. So we have to ask ourselves, I, you know, this is one of the fundamentally frustrating components of, you know, global interconnectivity. People can reach through and steal your stuff. And so it's, a, it's an interesting uh, and very difficult thing. And one of the reasons people say cyber is just really hard and I don't want to think about it. Mark, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, sure. So I think it's important to note that saying this is just espionage doesn't necessarily entail and shouldn't entail the conclusion, don't worry about it, right? So we need to separate those things apart. We need to recognize, hey, this actually so far is just espionage. As far as we could tell, the purpose of the malware and the purpose that it was actually exploited for was data exfiltration. Now, as a lot of folks have noted, and as, as Nina, I think, is suggesting, correct, like, we can't yet rule out the possibility that this malware has other functionality that hasn't been used yet. We can't rule out the fact either that it hasn't already compromised data integrity. So beyond just exfiltrating data, you can actually change or alter or manipulate data. That would be a sort of step up, right? The big step up would be if this malware could affect, and, and there are some reasons to think that at least in principle, it might be capable of this, affecting IoT devices. So cyber physical systems, remote sensing and control systems in industrial applications, for example. That's the sort of place where you can cross into physical harm, destruction of property, certainly, but injury and even death. Those would be really important next steps. And maybe that capability was implanted and is waiting. We don't know. Hopefully people are trying to figure that out. And if it is there, remediate it as quickly as possible. But on the basis of what's happened so far, all we can say is that this is espionage. Now, the main sort of reaction to that should be, well, remediate it, shut down the access, get rid of it. And that might entail actually for some organizations with really sensitive systems, totally rebuilding their IT, starting over, uh, which is, obviously disruptive, obviously costly. You might lose data and work product uh, from as far back. I think in the suggestions I've seen, we're not June, but rather March 2020. Uh, so we're really talking almost a year already, right? Think about losing everything you've done for a year, uh, if you don't have a backup. 
you know, it, that's a real problem. Uh, but it doesn't imply, for example, a retaliatory attack, right? Uh, so I think, you know, the Biden administration has come out and said they will impose costs on Russia, which is fine at the level of sanctions, at the level of expelling diplomats, at the level of things that fall in a category under an international law called retorsion. That's okay because retorsion acts under international law are legal. They don't violate themselves any rule of international law by definition. If you get to a countermeasure, that's justified only when there's uh, use of force. So um, those kinds of countermeasures under international law, which is a technical category uh, under international law different from a sort of countermeasure more broadly understood. That you can't do here, or at least you can't do legally. Now, countries sometimes violate international law. The United States has to decide here, and that's a policy decision, whether it's worth it in this case to violate international law in certain limited ways to really make the point to the Russians that this is not welcome behavior. Um, there are escalation risks there that need to be carefully considered and thought through. Uh, and that hopefully we now have a sort of security apparatus that's much better able to do in a reasonable uh, and sane and coherent way than, than the last four years. I'm actually kind of glad the transition took place when it did. Um, so I, I guess that's my first point. I just saying it's, a, it's espionage so far is really important, but it doesn't entail don't worry about it. There are a suite of things that we have to do that people already are doing, and that's really important. In terms of changing international law as a result, I'm actually really skeptical of that. I don't think the United States would decide to pursue that because I think, first of all, the NSA is already doing things materially similar to this. And if you tell me that nobody in Fort Meade is trying to do the same equivalent thing in Russia or in China or in other places, you're nuts. That's, they're clearly trying to do exactly similar kinds of things. And maybe they've succeeded. Maybe we just don't know. Maybe the NSA is slightly better at it. Maybe Russia and China as less open societies are less likely to talk about it. So, you know, for all of those reasons, I don't think we should expect the United States, even under a Biden administration, to come out in favor of banning espionage. The US is too good at it to really sort of expect that to be an American policy position. Um, you know, so at some point, if you live in a glass house, you don't get to throw stones. And that's the position for the United States here. And we, you know, being a Canadian living and working in the United States, I get to sort of take a slightly outsider and, and puckish perspective on these kinds of things sometimes and point out. Yeah, you know, the U.S. does an awful lot of this, too, which is true uh, and which is a thing that we need to remember. So, so go ahead, Nina. So one of the things that, um, that, that the follow on sort of thinking about this and one thing we haven't talked about yet um, is so we can talk about solar winds as a what do we do about Russia problem? We can talk about solar winds as what do we do about the international system problem, um, but there is also this often also just ignored question of what do we need to do defensively, and I mean that in the lowercase d, domestically, um, what kinds of policies, what kinds of systems and architectures do we really need to be putting money toward uh, that, that will get us, get, us, get us feeling more confident, even when, right, these sorts of things are going on. So the, the cybersecurity industry has long since taken on, right, has, has sort of fully, fully understood and grasped the depth of offense has, right, has the advantage. And they call it, you know, zero trust. They call it assume breach. 
and they say, if that's where we're at, then how do we build these systems in a way that they're resilient, right? Everyone loves the resiliency, right? How do you build a system that, that ensures that you've got good data integrity? Did they get in our systems? Did they mess with the data? How would we check? Well, you look at old copies, you see if they still match, right? Data backup. Um, you know, you, you, you think your way through things like network segmentation. And I think honestly, to assume that those things aren't going to improve over time is silly, right? We have a, we have a, you know, multi-billion dollar national industry called cybersecurity firm, you know, they, they, they serve the country, they do all sorts of things and they're constantly thinking about how to do defense better. And so one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is how do we better facilitate um, DHS, which is the lead agency in control here, how do we better facilitate their capacity to reach out and connect all the ends together so that when, not if, but when these things happen, we are better prepared to deal with it. Um, and I think that that's a, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a question I think that we often don't want to talk about because it, it quickly devolves into very tiny, tiny changes and that's hard. Um, and, and you can't do that, you know, from the 30,000 foot level, which we and I are just love to do. Um, but, but, but it's a, it's a serious question. I think, um, and my sense is that the Biden administration will hopefully move in this direction a lot much hay was made of the last administration's defend forward and persistent engagement um but really the question is i think are we going to see this administration pivot and say i'm not sure that that's that, that that my next cyber dollar needs to go to that to that end and that maybe the next cyber dollar needs to go to dhs or CISA. this i mean oh, sorry Go ahead. I would hope so, right? Right, but like you already have Rich Harkin out there saying, "Oh no, the lesson here is do more persistent engagement." Well, uh, -uh no, yeah, and it, you know, it, I, I don't know. It just seems I agree completely on the need to invest in defense here, and I think that that's exactly right. The other thing that I would say, it's actually an industrial policy question. So Bruce Schneier's op-ed in the New York Times a little while ago was really smart, and he made the fundamental point that. The beatings will continue until the incentives change, right, is basically the, the point. And, you know, one of the big problems is in the software industry, and this was a software thing, right, it's very hard to sue a software maker for putting a bad product out in the world because at the early dawn of the, the personal computer industry, we decided we wanted abundant, cheap software, and so we put in a lot of liability protection for software developers. I think rethinking that is actually one of the most important steps we could take. If as a sort of Western Alliance plus community, we could get major software developers on board with the idea that no, if you put crappy software out there, knowingly, especially, you're gonna have some civil liability. That is a really important change we could make. And I think arguably it's long past time that we make that change because we have to change the incentives for private sector developers and and, 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 you know, producers of especially systemically important software, right? If you're systemically important in this industry, just like in the power industry, just like in other critical infrastructure industries, you have to play by some different rules. And I think to me, that's one of the key steps we could take. It's an industrial policy step and it needs to be taken at a global level with some coordination. So it's not just the US, but other important jurisdictions. In addition to having the EU on board, India would be. So in terms of thinking about global software development. Uh, so it, for me, those are some key steps. And Nina is exactly right. This is about some really basic kind of blocking and tackling stuff. 
So, uh, Nina, you mentioned the Trump administration's policy slash strategy of forward defense or defense forward. I can't remember which order those words go in. And some of the analysis I've seen has faulted that, right? Uh, Along the lines of what you and Mark are suggesting, that it was too focused on offensive operations, right? So as I understand it, and I'm sure you will both correct me in short order, forward defense or defense forward or whatever it is, was the idea was that U.S. uh, agents, NSA or whomever, would park themselves in foreign countries' computers and watch for them to be doing naughty stuff. And that would give them this more proactive engagement kind of framework in which they would see, oh, the Russians are stealing from us and we're seeing it right away rather than discovering it eventually in our networks. And that obviously failed in dramatic fashion with this hack. So that raises two questions for me. You know, one, are there are there domestic or international kind of policy consequences from getting that wrong? Uh, and second, and this is a bigger question, can we even think about cybersecurity in a meaningfully strategic way? And the basis for that question, so uh, Nina, you and I are both graduates of SWAMOS 2010, and I teach strategy and arms control. I teach strategy, and I'm teaching strategy to my gra- to graduate students this semester, and we wrestle with this idea of strategy. What does it mean? How can you, uh, you know, develop theories of strategy? And we read Dick Betts's "Is Strategy an Illusion," in which he argues that strategy is not illusory, but only when it's over short time frames and relatively simple issues. And it seems to me that cybersecurity is neither short time frame nor relatively simple. And that would suggest that thinking about cybersecurity in any kind of meaningful strategic way is, if not impossible, difficult to the point that it is practically impossible. And I don't, I, again, I will say again, I don't know anything about this stuff. So I'm, I'm just throwing this out there to the two of you. You know, is it, is it really just going to be, is the strategy just try to write better passwords and, you know, I mean, because as our, I have not heard anything about any repercussions for solar winds other than perhaps they've lost their federal contracts, but maybe not even that. Um, so I, I guess I'm just trying to come to terms with, you know, it seems to me that maybe there's a lot of, maybe the, the duck is kicking hard, you know, the, uh, under the water, but it doesn't seem to me like very much has happened with this kind of very substantial um, penetration of U.S. federal networks. And so is it just we give up and we say, well, you know, write better passwords, maybe Mark, you're right, better industrial policy, although it's really hard to see anything like that getting through the U.S. federal government anytime soon where software companies would become liable for 
writing bad code because you'd have to have some kind of conception of what bad code is and what kinds of of weaknesses are are liabilities and what kind of weaknesses just make for bad user experiences and how would you get others on board? I mean, the United States and, and Europe can't even see eye to eye on privacy policy, which seems to me to be a perhaps a more straightforward issue area. Maybe it's not. So so I guess in the end I, I I'm just wondering, is there is there anything to be done? from a strategic standpoint, we just say, well, we just try to mow the yard, try to keep the grass clean. And, you know, sometimes we're just going to miss spots and we're going to be violated. And that's that. Oh gosh, to me first. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I am not a Swamos graduate, so I don't know if I, I have the secret decoder ring. Uh, well, we just, I, I I'll just, give it a shot. I just study it, but we just, it's just like strategy geek fest for a couple of weeks. So that's all. I mean, this is a massively complex nonlinear system, right? And anytime we're dealing with those, it's hard. The whole essence of strategy is the outcome is not dependent on one person's choice. It's dependent on the choices of all the players. Well, N here is extremely big. And when you get really big N and when you have outcomes that are the product of a ton of variables and a ton of different actors' choices, you know, a lot of my work talks about really understanding and coping with the sort of reality here that this is an incredibly decentralized system that has incredibly decentralized governance that we have tied to systems that are incredibly important down to the local level, down to water grid, down to traffic management, down to the electrical grid. Um, it blows up the distinction between domestic and international, right? There was a story just a few weeks ago about a small town in Florida that had its water system hacked and the hacker, um, the, the attacker, altered and increased the amount of sodium hydroxide or lye in the water supply, which is caustic. And that's a real health danger for people. And it was discovered simply because someone happened to be on the system at the time and noticed something weird happened. We're not that's sure. Scary. What, yeah, and is that a domestic issue? Is that an international one? Well, it depends on where the attacker is. And we don't know yet, right? So when you're a small town in Florida and now you're suddenly caught up in this, how do we really cope with that? And it it creates some serious questions, but I think the idea that we're going to stop trying to be strategic at the national security level is, is a non-starter because there's too much infrastructure and too many people whose livelihoods depend on trying to do this. There's a, an established practice, right? So my conservative hat goes on and I say, that's not gonna stop because all these folks are invested in it. It's a whole life world of people doing this as a profession and calling. And so that's fine. They'll continue to be involved, but it's not just a them problem, it's an everything problem. And we're not good at coping with that yet. So this is fundamentally transforming the conditions of possibility for governance. So something I've been thinking about recently is economists talk about small open economies and sort of about the, the idea of operating as a small open economy. I think what the, the cyber domain teaches us in this sort of diffusion of this technology, especially IoT stuff, teaches us is that we need to have a small open polity what does it mean to be a polity where you're effectively a rule taker uh, for your own domestic governance issues? And by the way, we're all small open polities, just like we're all really small open economies in the context of a world economy that's enormous. Um, it really challenges our notions of democratic governance and accountability. It challenges our notions of uh, inside outside us then. It challenges a whole bunch of things. And 
you know, short of decoupling a lot of things that we've already tied together, which would be enormously difficult and costly, at some level, that's just reality that we need to cope with. And it does mean that occasionally we're going to have these disruptions. So Nina's point earlier about resilience and the importance of, you know, sure, we're going to try and prevent bad things from happening, but we actually have to sort of invest in quick recovery after. And you know, having just lived through the storm that hit the center of the country uh, a few weeks ago and, and being enormously grateful that I live just north of and not in Texas, um, you know, it shows us that resilience is actually inefficient and costly and that we have prioritized efficiency, especially in the United States, but really across the Anglo world um, and, and other parts of the world too, on the basis of just driving costs down which is great until you realize that maybe some of those costs were supporting resiliency and redundancy that helped you in the event something bad happens. So we might have to accept some higher costs in order to have less costly and less dangerous disruptions. So, uh, so yeah, I, so I think it's a build on what Mark's saying, right? So if we're thinking about a, about a national security strategy, uh, for those of you who haven't read the interim piece that came out, the Biden administration just turned out its interim national security strategy before they can sort of really get the wheels turning. Um, I think one of the things to think about, again, to Mark's point, this is like, this is a deeply embedded foundational complex system, um, is, is not so much sort of how can we cyber strategy better? I mean, that's clearly sort of cyber command's mandate, right? How do I cyber strategy better? But I think increasingly just among the, the services more broadly, the question is, how do we do strategy better, especially given cyber? So what does it, what does it make more volatile, more sensitive, more difficult to do, and then to work at it from that? Because all the old rules are still there. All the old rules are still like the tools of statecraft, all of that's still there. The question is, some of it's just a lot more powerful than it used to be. Some of it is a lot weaker than it used to be. Um, and one of the things you want to do when you think about a domestic defense perspective is what are the what are the different kinds of security controls that we need to put in place? The physical stuff, better fences, right? The technical stuff, uh, you know, better firewalls, better software. The administrative stuff. Please have a longer password, right? All of these things will then, if right, if we implement them usefully, will then start to kind of realign and 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 pull some of that volatility back into place. Right? So the way we used to do strategy still matters. The question is, what is cyber making harder and, and easier? And then how do you then mitigate by doing other stuff or do new, doing new stuff? Um, and, and I think that it's very easy to overstate. One, I will say this much. It's very easy to overstate the effectiveness or the, the capacity to sort of disrupt things at the cyber level. It's very easy to overstate it. And, and SolarWinds is a really good case of like, holy crap, they jackpot, they jackpot, right? Um, but when you think about the sheer number of attacks going on out there, you know, you know, who is knocking at the door and when do you answer it? Because it might be a real threat. The answer is someone's always knocking on the door and you're never quite sure. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's just a lot harder to sort of sort through the signal and the noise. But, but by and large, you know, software companies are getting better at their game, right? Uh, was it Steve Jobs? Was it Steve Jobs or Bill Gates? One of them said, look, we're no longer in the, we're no longer in the service of software industry anymore. We're not trying to make people's lives more efficient. The, the game is now security. That is the purpose, right? The game is security because everything else falls down when you don't have it. And so, 
you know, we're the you know the learning is going on, and I, you know, to Mark's prior point, like it has to cost something, and if you can make it cost somewhat something somewhere in the right place, or maybe that was your point, Jared, then you start to see people um, act more responsibly, and and so I think if we're thinking about policy, um, and I know that the Biden administration is thinking about policy, one of the things to think about probably with a little bit more nuance than just not Huawei, um, is to think about industrial policy. It's to start thinking about what kinds of standards and requirements. We still need to be competitive, right? So you need it, you need it to be just as cheap as sloppy security consumer good providers. But you, so, you know, you have to think about what are the incentives to, what are the laws that you want to put in place so people can start taking security seriously. You have to offload the load, the load on the consumer because how the heck are they supposed to know, um, right? And then, and, you, you, you know, you, you can work at this, but it's a, it's really granular. It's not very satisfying, right? It doesn't feel like you've made much headway. Um, but the reality is like, everybody's got to pull. Everybody's in the boat. Everyone's got to pull. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting and, and um, complicated issue, but, um, but we can get there. I think we can. I, I, I have faith. It seems to me that there's a, a parallel here, actually, between climate change policy and, or, and national and cyber security, uh, the same kind of decentralized responsibility for action um, with certain concentrations or nodes of, of uh, accessibility, right? Um, I don't know. Maybe there's a paper somebody can write there about that. The Something you said... Uh, Nina has me f thinking about an, about this. So the services in particular are thinking about strategy. How does cyber impact their strategic thinking more generally? And um, we just talked about nuclear weapons in my class and the students read uh, uh, Lawrence Friedman's piece in Makers of Modern Strategy on Nuclear Weapons. And one of the things that comes out of Friedman's chapter is this idea that in some ways uh, nuclear weapons were strategically de-agentifying, and that's not a word, but I just made it up anyway, right? That, that this, these systems altered strategic agency in ways that actually reduced the capacity of actors to, to act rather than increase their capacity to act, which they thought kind of initially it might. Not to say that these cyber issues are the same, but rather that I, in what ways are, do cybersecurity distort, that's the parallel, right? That nuclear weapons distorted strategic thinking a priori, right? You could, it, in some ways it, it diminished the strategic agency of the possessors of nuclear weapons because all of a sudden they're thinking about ladder of escalation and they don't want to go too far because then they're going to breach the nuclear threshold and then, then everybody dies, right? Whereas that, those, that thinking didn't exist prior to 1945 or you know 1950, depending on where you want to draw the line. Uh, in terms of whether it's the when the U.S. got a nuclear weapon or when the Soviets got it or what have you, but uh, so it, is there a sense that cybersecurity is exercising a same kind, not the same kind, but a distorting effect on strategy, either kind of national security strategy or specific to 
military services in which people are saying, well, we can't think about strategy the same way we did before, that we have to do it differently now because cyber dot, dot, dot. Um, I think so. I think, um, I think one of the, one of the things that cyber really messes up, um, and frankly, right at the opposite end of the nuclear spectrum, one of the things that cyber really messes up is it makes a ton more people the agent. This, the, the capacity to have effects, maybe not, you know, as exquisite as Stuxnet, because it's a very, Stuxnet, uh, for those who haven't been beaten over the head with this yet, right, is this, is the, the effect we had uh, that, that some actor had on uh, the Natanz uh, enrichment facility in Iran is a very bespoke, exquisite piece. But what can the average person do with cyber? A lot, and it's terrifying. And um, so one of the problems is that it, it hyper-identifies, if that's now a word we're using, um, the space. And so there makes right so it makes everything noisier. Really, if you think if you think sense if you think signaling works, um, try doing it with this many screaming actors in the space. And then the second thing I think that really kind of binds people up is that nuclear strategy and policy policy could be a it was a foreign policy, right? I mean we had a domestic development program, but it was a foreign policy. And here it's un it's just really uncomfortable because people don't want to think about cyber criminality and cyber politics in and on the international stage in the same breath, and yet we're being asked to do it. We're saying the domestic is the international, and that really ties up international relations theory in really funky ways. So I think those are my two sort of outstanding problems. Mark? Yeah, and I agree. And I mean, that that sort of last one sort of takes off of and builds on some of the things that I was talking about, you know, highly decentralized governance of a, an essential, highly complex system. That really is a, a fundamental, uh, Shift and so for me, one you know the, the next book I have in mind to write is actually about how mass deployment of these technologies actually, um, you know, fundamentally upends our understanding of an an anarchic international system. I think in really interesting ways that build on a lot of the literature on hierarchy and other sort of developments in international relations theory over the last decade or so. And so for me, that's an exciting place for my thinking to go. In terms of the strategy, I guess I think there's a real need to differentiate the espionage from the sort of potential destructive effects because I think those two kinds of cyber activity have really different strategic implications, right? And I, you know, Nina is better sort of positioned to talk specifically about what those are. But for me, as an observer, you know, if I have to think about, okay, I need to assume breach. I need to assume the enemy is inside my network and they have real-time observation of all my command communications. That tells me some really important things that matter a lot for strategy. On the other hand, if I assume that they can also, if they so desi decide, you know, fundamentally destabilize my critical infrastructures and destroy physical equipment in ways that cause injury and death, that's a really different problem. Ironically, I think, you know, Thomas Ridd had a piece, uh, you know, Cyber War Will Not Take Place uh, about a decade now uh, ago, which is a fantastic piece. It gets my students mad whenever they read it because it flies in the face of, of what they've been told. But it's a really important message because that kind of sabotage is a hard, as Nina pointed out. It's really sort of easy to overestimate how possible that is at, at scale. Anyway, it's also not something that anyone has a clear incentive to do, because the idea that a major actor wouldn't retaliate in that event is crazy. Of course they would, right? And so yes, their capability to retaliate quickly might be degraded, but 
you know, you better be really careful if you're going to launch that kind of attack. We're highly unlikely to see that outside of the context of a major war. And, you know, if we get to the point of a major war between great powers, we've all frankly got bigger things to worry about than whether the lights stay on. So in that sense, that's actually the easier problem to deal with. The espionage problem is in some ways the harder problem to deal with. Um, so in terms of the strategic effects, I think the, the key is distinguishing between those two. You know, we say cyber attack. We may actually need to sort of revisit that because calling solar winds an attack, you know, it's a computer network intrusion for sure. Um, it's not an attack in the sense that we mean it. And, you know, it, that language might sort of um, help to drive some of the fear. So one of the things that's really stood out to me, just being a person, right, is when I got my first internet connection in high school, it was the old dial-up modem. I was so excited, man. The internet was great. I grew up in Saskatchewan in a very rural place. It exposed me to more of the world. And that was wonderful. And so the internet was framed in terms of opportunity in ways I think, you know, for folks that are roughly all of our ages, uh, was how we first experienced it. Now the internet framing is all around threat. Miriam Duncanelty has done some really good work showing that, right? And it's really an important thing not to get too freaked out. And it's hard, but we got to remember, you know, this technology enables a lot too. It's not only a source of threat. We need to sort of keep that forefront in our minds. You know, a, a world without the internet, without all these technologies, you know, to state the obvious, this wouldn't be possible, right? We couldn't be doing this. And I've had a lot of fun with it. So, um, and, and you know, the, the world economy would be a lot poorer. Um, you know, there'd be a lot of other implications too. Uh, ironically for climate change, it might be better, right? IT is a huge driver of, of greenhouse gas emissions now. And that's a problem we need to grapple with. For me, the climate IT intersection, that's where it is, right? This, this kind of stuff, especially if we adopt blockchain for everything, energy requirements are gonna be enormous. I don't think we're thinking of it that yet. That we really need to. That's very, that's very interesting. I mean, it, it seems to me um, the point that both of you are making is that it may not be removing state agency, but it may be diluting state agency to be able to, um, you know, their, their states may be able to, may still have a predominance in terms of espionage style activities um, that might require greater amounts of resources and dedicated human effort to get into these, to other states' computer systems. Uh, but, you know, the person who hacked into the Florida water treatment plant, that has, that has uh, ramifications and that may or may not have been a state, right? Because they may just may be some person hanging out in their apartment in, you know, whatever benighted place who, you know, guessed that the password was Florida one, two, three, four, and got in and started monkeying around with stuff. Um, and that suggests a dilution of agency in terms of the ability of the state to, to control events in the, in the world. Um, and it seems to me what I'm gathering from you guys is that the significance of that is still perhaps unknown. We don't really know what, what it means, right? Maybe it's, you know, you end up having occasional people getting, you know, poisoned when water plants go sideways, or maybe it becomes, uh, 
maybe be espionage eventually breaks out of the state silos and becomes something that you know may corporations can start to undertake on behalf of states or or even collectives of individuals like um on, was that a hacker collective anonymous or something like that that can they can i mean matt i i struggle to imagine what the strategic consequences are for hacker collectives like that if they are able to start executing espionage on that level uh, so that's one thing that i gathered from you guys the other is this is issue of language and that's quite striking to me we're very i think in common parlance we're very careless when we talk about these things and and i am as guilty as anybody and part of that comes comes from not knowing that much about it and so the discursive frames that we use are provided to us by those who 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 would claim a kind of analytical high ground and they're they are predominantly in terms of in terms of traditional strategic concepts like attack and defense and this sort of thing and that i i don't know i think that has ramifications i don't know what those ramifications are but you know one can imagine that there's it's very difficult to get traction for some kind of countermeasure and i have no idea what that you know what that looks like in terms of international law if people aren't calling it a cyber attack right if they're calling it a a network intrusion or espionage or something like that so i don't know those are those are just some random reactions i have to you guys uh we're we're very close to the end of our hour that I promised I would take up of your time. So I want to give you both a last chance to have any comments, either reacting to that random stream of thought that I just gave you or, or anything on this subject that we haven't covered. Uh, I mean, by way of, um, so I'm, I'm wrapping up, um, I actually am wrapping up uh, uh, a book manuscript on um, hackers, but not the kind everybody points to. Um, and so, but the next book, Jared, is exactly what, I, or it might just be an article, let's be honest, most books are just articles that are too long. But uh, um, one of the things that I think really needs to be looked at analytically, just sort of tracing the history of, is the development of that language. And I, I, I am fairly certain that what you're going to find when you track back is some very strong um, roots in, um, not just the intelligence community, but also the military communities um, who were trained by the military, who exited the military and the intelligence communities to start their own cybersecurity firms. And I would imagine, in fact, I, could, I can think of a number of countries, and I think again, this is worth analysis, to look at the state of cybersecurity provision firms that are, exist, the global firms, and to try and figure out just how much of that talent came out of intelligence agencies and military organizations. And I, my instinct, but I don't know it yet, is that there's a ton of it. And, I, and that's where the language, so the language becomes its own echo chamber, right? So that you have a state saying, a country saying, we need help figuring out what the cyber is. You have the firm saying, we speak this language, it's called the military and, and intelligence language, and it suddenly becomes the dominant language. And I could be completely wrong, but it's my instinct just from what I, just from a casual look in um, future work, we'll probably bear that out. 
Well, I, that's totally right. I mean, the, the two people who, for me, have been essential in educating me on the, the, these kind of language issues, Miriam Duncan-Velty's work, then Jordan Branch has a terrific article last year in International Organization, and he traces exactly what Nina's pointed out. He points out that the sort of cyber domain language, Michael Hayden's kind of a key figure in the development of this in the U.S., but the you know, Jordan's article is about the, the U.S. context, which is essential. It's also the most legible, and it's the easiest accessible, but there's a key point you know, that he starts to recognize and that IR needs to sort of go better at, there are real national culture differences in terms of thinking about these issues, right? The Russians have this entire language of information security, which is fundamentally different from the cybersecurity language that Western countries use. China has a very distinctive way of understanding this. Other countries that are just coming online are going to develop their own strategic cultures, but India, Brazil, other sort of globally systemic countries it's not clear that they will sort of entirely adopt one or the other of the existing approaches. They may sort of innovate, there may be drift, there may be. Um, and then if we have this world of countries and major powers operating with fundamentally different conceptual frameworks for this set of technologies and its associated social um, penumbra, we don't know, right? Like, What's the implication if the US has a military domain framework, but Russia has something different and China has something different yet? If we have fundamentally incompatible understandings of the technology and its social implications, we may very, very badly misunderstand each other. And so to me, that kind of clarity is really essential. And the folks that did the Talon Manual and talked to Mike Schmidt, he's extremely frustrated that states don't say more about what their sort of uh, positions on cyber legal issues are. He's right to an extent, but it needs to go deeper than that, right? Because this is mutual learning. And I've published an article uh, on, and it's a, a case from my book, uh, to make Nina's point about how most books are just too long articles, uh, talking about how the UNGGE in the first uh, committee of the General Assembly has dealt with this really since 1998. It's a sort of mutual learning process where countries sort of clarify, well, okay, uh, how does international law apply to military use of information technology? It took them 15 years just to agree that it did. And we haven't gotten much beyond that. So the time scale here for the social understanding emerging and coalescing is much longer than the time scale for the evolution and the maturation of the technology and the uses we're putting it to in the world. And boy, that's a you know, that's a dangerous thing. So if I could, you know, wave a pen and, and get somebody to do something, I would want people and governments and universities to invest massively more in the social science of international relations around cyber issues. Um, we need to better understand this. The only way to do it is to talk to people. Rebecca Slayton and Aaron Clark Ginsburg have this fantastic article in the electrical industry, and they say that you know the IT folks and the operational technology folks, the power generation and transmission folks, had fundamentally different understandings of the, the threat or whether there was a threat, what kind of threat it was. It took them a long time to sort of reach a sort of modus vivendi and sort of have an emerging profession around these things. We have a technical profession for cybersecurity. We are so far behind on the emergence of a cyber policy and strategy profession. And it is a distinct profession. We need to develop it. And folks, you know, like me and, and like other academics at universities need to be at the leading edge of that because that's our job. It's, it's our job to teach people. We have to teach them about these kinds of things in a very social science aware way. And until and unless we do that, we're going to get terrible policy. We may still get terrible policy after that. Democratic peace, Jared, you know, that's a, a sort of 
uh, IR theory idea that had legs in the world that were not entirely positive to say the least. But um, you know, I, I think overall, um, you know, the more we know, the better on we are. Well, thank you very much, both of you. I, I found that to be an incredibly interesting conversation and I hope our listeners will take away, I think there's several interesting ideas here at the very least that deserve greater exploration and, and um, I hope our listeners will have an opportunity or, or see those uh, opportunities through. So thank you very much to both of you. I really, really appreciate your time and I look forward to having you both on again at some point in the future. Thank you. Thank you.